one of the things I really like about fragrance is the way that it can tell stories. It can evoke places and times past, conjure memories or transport you to somewhere else entirely, somewhere totally new. Brands that do this well are something quite magical, and I'm delighted to have guests from one such brand here with us today. Joram Studio are fragrant spellcasters. They work up in Edinburgh in Scotland and produce incredibly complex, detailed fragrances which contain ingredients you've never heard of before and likely never smelled, at least not knowingly. How many other scents, for example, can you name that contain the note of Sicily or deer tongue? So let's meet them then. Joining us today are Chloe Mullen and Ewan McCall from Joram Studios. Hi there, guys. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for being here. So I wondered if we could start by just getting you to describe your fragrance journey for us. Like, where did it start and how did your brand evolve? Uh, yeah, uh, well, for me, it started when I was quite young, uh, which is somewhat unusual. Uh, probably not so much as time progresses where people are being exposed to perfumery uh, more at, uh, at a younger age. Um, but for me, I was always interested in cosmetics um, and fragrance was probably the the biggest pool because um, it's, you know, it's it's mystical, it's, it's magical, it's, you, it's uh, un, intangible. Um, so as soon as I could, I started working in the perfume industry, uh, sales, management, uh, MPD, whilst at the same time uh, undertaking perfumery training, uh, both formally and informally, uh, before eventually setting up uh, Joram Laboratories over a decade ago as a way to um, provide services to clients um, who are looking to venture out into the world of perfumery with their own products or projects. Uh, and uh, Chloe comes from a similar but slightly different background, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I came, I, I came to it quite late. Um, so I, I was studying for a degree in history of architecture at Edinburgh University. And then I worked in perfumery sales while I was studying. And then from there, it just sort of progressed. Um, it wasn't really anything I'd ever thought about it being sort of in my future professionally. But you, you get sort of captivated by by the industry, both, both on a creative side and just in general, it's a really interesting industry to to work in. And I think the longer people are exposed to it I think the more enchanted they get by it so yeah it wasn't it wasn't necessarily planned but I came on board with with Joram around five years ago um, and we've sort of grown the business together since then uh, but you and started it originally about 10 years ago. Mm. I think you're right there I think it is really um captivating and the more I learn about it the you know we talk about it as being like a rabbit hole that people fall down and I, yeah. I can see that being totally true and um I always find it fascinating that when I started out, um, you know, just as a consumer of perfume, mm. um, perfumers were these kind of mystical creatures that, you know, were kind of talked about in whispered tones and kept <laughs> behind closed doors and, yeah. you know, in France and nowhere else. And <laughs> I, I love the pulling back of that curtain because it has been traditionally quite a secretive industry, hasn't it? And yeah. Um, yeah. I think now people are getting to see a little bit more. Um, and it's a it's certainly a really interesting ride for me, so I'm glad it is for you as well. I think a lot of that is connected with you know the work of a perfumer is uh, as much as it's interesting and it's it, it it's captivating it, the day to day you know especially in a large international fragrance house 
it's laboratory work, which is notoriously you know, quite, not mundane, but it's you don't really think about it in the laboratory that you're doing amazing things that people might be interested in because you're Just doing quite analytical work, job-based tasks. But for the layperson, I suppose, that is fascinating, you know, how individual raw materials then go on to comprise the end product, you know, and how individual materials, when combined, smell so vastly different to how they do in isolation. So you can see why people are uh, interested at a, uh, an almost geeky level, but then you can also see why perfumers or the industry itself has never really shouted too loudly because it's it's just part of the the job in some way yeah 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 no that's really interesting and one of the things that struck me about your brand in particular was um that you talk about ethics over trends would you mind saying a little bit about what you feel that that means to you yeah i suppose it's it, it, it's kind of fundamentally linked uh to us as as people as grandiose as that might sound you know we would much rather focus on uh, the ethical or the provenance of the materials um, rather than looking at a trend to exploit for a set amount of time before moving on to the next trend. You know, we would much rather focus on raw material provenance and how the supply chain is uh, behind the raw materials and, you know, treating people that we work with directly and customers um fairly i suppose yeah. uh, you know at the end of the day that's kind of what drives us and what we are as consumers we look for um products whereby it's almost a celebration of the product and and the industry whatever that may be uh rather than just saying yeah it's a uh, this x y or z trend you know we we, we as consumers as people aren't really interested in trends uh but i suppose that's it almost in a nutshell yeah. with our statement of ethics over yeah. over trends yeah you know. i think as well um with something like um so with our our supply chain and and every sort of element of our packaging etc we tried to be as um sort of eco-conscious and and sustainable as possible but we didn't want to necessarily make that a, a big mission statement um with Jorm Studio, mainly just because we feel it's something that everyone should be doing fundamentally. And if you shout about it too loudly, there is a tendency that it becomes almost like a USP, when to us it should be something everyone's doing. Um, so again, that sort of links back to our idea that it's just general ethics over anything that's too trend-driven um, in, in that sense. Mm, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, thank you. Um, and how would you describe your sort of style and voice as a brand if you know if you met somebody down the pub and you were trying to explain what you did you know how would you describe um what joram does and the sort of sense you produce that's a good question um <laughs> i suppose you know like our, our style um is probably eclectic uh yeah, yeah this is probably how we would describe it uh but always with a dedication to quality and craftsmanship and for us, again, as you know, almost arrogant as it sounds, we're always trying to push and innovate uh, because it keeps us interested. Um, because you know, it, on one hand, it's there's millions of beautiful rose-based perfumes 
on the market um, and we all enjoy them. Uh, but for us, we try to look for how to then push a rose into a different area while still being <laughs> overtly rosaceous, but we we're trying to kind of push with things. Yeah. Um, and as a brand, our voice is very much our own and our customers, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. There are brands out there, many of them, and we just, yeah, sometimes we feel like everyone's screaming and shouting, and but many are kind of saying the same thing, whereas we want to uh, want to do us and, yeah, want to sh- make sure that the customer feels included in that process or that journey because, yeah, without customers, we don't exist as a brand. So yeah. it's kind of, that's our voice and our vision. Uh, I don't know if that answers your, <laughs> your question. Mm. But. Yeah, to me, I see something a little bit... Um, Gothic's not the right word and melancholy is not the right word either. It's a sort of introspectiveness that um, I find quite fascinating about the scents. And the ones that I've tried are very artistic but still Mm. wearable. And I think there's an interesting, you know, there's that kind of um, confluence of art and wearability there. And I think that's a really tricky line to walk, um, you know, making something that, is true to you and your customers, but that is still elegant and, you know, will still make you feel good when you put it on. How, when you're composing, how do you know where that line is? And have you ever composed anything really out there that you just thought wouldn't land with your customers, but then it did? That's another good question or a couple of questions. Um, for us, I think instinct is sometimes yeah, an overlooked skill in perfumery or uh as a perfumer you know um and in some way that is linked with a confidence uh but you know we make for the love of making really um so we're always trying to to a line between what possesses um quality and um also what is uh possesses a level of taste a level of taste yeah and we think we have quite a good barometer of what is tasteful or or possesses uh taste but we would always stay true to ourselves or our our artistic vision or 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 however you would yeah I mean, I think as well with um, sort of the process of of making a fragrance, um, it's mainly just like Ewan just gets left to his own devices. And most of the time it's, it's, you know, it could be, you know, a memory from his childhood or, you know, something that just inspired him that day. But I think there's a a real significance for us in, in letting that full creative process just take its course and not think too much about um sort of what the the end product's going to smell like um and i think from from our perspective we've had a, a really great response from from customers who recognize that it this is a reflection of a perfumer's point of view and there's not necessarily any requirement for you to like it um it's more just a, a sort of a, a conversation starter and you know just a a, a statement of this is my perspective on it what do you think and i think that's that's a a conversation with our customers that we really like um and it's definitely something that 
um, shapes the brand as we go forward as well. I think um, to add to that, you know, uh, a lot of our experiences as it transpires um, are also shared experiences that, yeah. that um, our customers or wearers or people who engage with the, the perfumes, you know, there, there, is, there might not be a direct um, shared experience, you know, because some of them are perhaps a little bit more personal from my particular childhood. But it's always interesting and, and lovely, really, to, to um, hear how many people are from all different areas of the world um, as we kind of expand this project um also come back and say no that reminds me of my childhood as well and i'm in you know lithuania or um south america somewhere but not quite as bucolic as maybe the scottish interpretation you know it's maybe there's just some form of shared uh experience going on which you know is is fascinating really in some ways mm, absolutely i think um that has to be one of the things that keeps bringing people back to fragrance is that shared connection. Yeah. And yeah, it, um, it, I, I haven't got bored of the fact that I can meet somebody, you know, at a perfume conference or something, we get chatting about yeah. a scent and we'll talk about that, that, you know, shared connection and, um, yeah. or a perfumer will create something that I've never smelt before and it triggers something that you think, oh god, that just takes me back to so and such a time, yeah. and yeah. I just think that's really magical. It's really clever. I, yeah. think, I do think almost increasingly whether it's always been there, but I think the more discussion and the more um, exposure people have, and probably a lot of falling down that rabbit hole, the more we dis- we talk more freely between ourselves, that we start to learn that from different walks of life, different cultures, and different. Uh, geographical locations we do have almost a a shared or connected humanity um yeah you know, that our childhood growing up in rural parts of the uk is probably not too dissimilar to growing up in rural parts of italy or uh the south of france or somewhere else which is is really interesting for for us that as time goes on we start to <laughs> to unravel this uh, shared connectedness which is really nice yeah it's 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 really nice and it's incredibly powerful i think as well mm, yeah um so scotland you know itself is associated with many wonderful things but perfumery isn't necessarily the first that springs to mind when you... yeah <laughs> yeah sorry <laughs> no that's all right uh, when you decided to set up the business was it a concern for you that people might not take you quite as seriously given that you were based in Scotland as opposed to somewhere that has a, this really kind of grand reputation for, you know, for example, somewhere like grass. Yeah. Um, no, uh, it, it really didn't care what anyone thought really. And, and, and that, uh, in that capacity, um, because I've always stated that Scotland deserves a, a world-class perfumery offer uh, where it maybe one time it didn't exist. Uh so it, it 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 wasn't really a a concern that you know we lie outside those uh, grand capitals of perfumery such as grass or New York or uh, any of the others, um, but it certainly is more challenging. Uh, and again, even the challenges which I was encountering uh, over a decade ago, such as raw materials or you know more so suppliers taking a 
new upstart uh, seriously, um, they're starting to dissipate um, as time goes on. Uh, but certainly, yeah, being set up here in Scotland and providing the services we do to clients all over the world um, has had its its challenges. Uh, but it never really concerned me. But again, that was probably youthful naivety. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it really just... I didn't think, I thought, oh, no, of course you can just set up a fragrance formulation and manufacturing <laughs> business in Scotland, and why shouldn't you? Which I still say, I still stand by, but um, it certainly provided uh, a, a hell of a lot of um, stress, mm. um, yeah. which um, would have been negated if we'd set up in grass for sure, uh, or or even down in London. <laughs> yeah. uh, now there's little to no difference in terms of obstacles um, between London and where we are in Edinburgh. But uh, but certainly 10 or so years ago, there was uh, quite a number of challenges. Mm. Yeah. And I wonder how Scotland itself influences both your creative practice mm. and the final fragrances you produce, because it's such a... Um, it's such a beautiful place, but it's a very characterful... You know, it's a place that has personality, isn't it? And uh, do you feel yeah. like that's influenced you at all? I mean, it's it, it really is difficult not to be inspired by Scotland, as he says, as a native <laughs> Scot. But, you mean, it, it, it is beautiful. It's, it, so it's difficult to not be inspired or, uh, you know, have a, a creative urge which is in some way linked to the homeland. Um, but we are always conscious that there is a danger of uh, a brand falling into a, a novelty trap uh, yeah. on, on the Scottishness. Um, but it, it certainly influences us and the end perfumes inherently. Um, but we don't want to necessarily yeah, look at it from the landscape porn direction as, mm. as much as it, it, it's, it's beautiful. And it is hard not to be inspired by. There's our perspective from a Scottish angle is actually probably more so uh, geared towards uh, pioneers yeah. and innovation, and you know the the great Scottish minds of the last hundred or two hundred years who have been at the forefront of global innovation and in medicines, manufacturing, uh, architecture, art. yeah science art yeah so we come from more from that angle uh i, I suppose um yeah that's great and when you're creating a fragrance what's your creative process like how do you go about generating the ideas for the sense and how do you know or maybe you don't know until the final perfume but how do you know this is a good idea this one's got legs and this one maybe hasn't yeah that's a, that's a good Good question. And um, I mean, our creative process for our self-directed works um, through Jorm Studio, um, we generate all the concepts. Yeah, it's usually inspired by uh, an experience, uh, how to recreate that experience aromatically with raw materials. Um, often it could be a raw material itself used as a jumping off point, uh, you know, 
we'll have discussions between ourselves. Uh, what can we do with the new aromatic? Uh, how can we push the limits of this or that material? Or um, how can we emphasize the beauty of these materials? Um, but beyond the perfumery specific elements, uh, we tend to use a lot of mixed media uh, yeah. to shape the development. You know, Chloe's always putting together mood boards, music, uh, references from other cultures, uh, images, fabric. Yeah other crafts processes yeah, food food is a big inspiration as well i think you you sort of find inspiration wherever you are um and it's just how you sort of jump on that and either react instinctively or, or sort of bank that that idea for a later stage um i mean it's we try to keep the the creative process quite organic um so we never sort of have a, a timeline of okay we need to make a fragrance for a launch in summer or or anything like that we kind of just try and keep it as as fluid as possible so that the the fragrance itself kind of comes about naturally and it doesn't feel too forced um again that goes back to just sort of let, letting you and do what he wants really <laughs> <laughs> um, i mean it usually starts when it comes to the materials as a jumping off point it usually starts with a a shipment of new raw materials that ewan's procured and then me wandering into the studio and he says, have a smell of this without telling me much else about what it is or what I'm about to smell. Sometimes it smells great. Sometimes it smells a little bit rotten. <laughs> and, and at that point we think, oh, what can we do with that to make it more interesting? Or, well, that's a great material. How do we emphasize that and, and sort of translate that um, joy of discovery of a new raw material into a new fragrance uh, and sort of see where that takes us? Yeah, and the, you know, that process is it, it is shared, but it's quite different if we're working on uh, client works. Yeah. You know, if a client comes to us, usually that client will have a, a fully formed brief, uh, an idea, um, or you know they've done quite deep dives on a demographic or a particular um, expansion of their current portfolio that they want to investigate further. So we. We all still, you know, input our creative flair in terms of what we would interpret the brief as. But usually it's been furnished a fully formed concept and brief and then said, how would you interpret that as a perfume? And then, you know, that development goes on and on. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> keeps going on for a, a, quite a long time because, you know, they're trying to achieve uh, almost set goals um, or they at least have a, a goal in mind whereas for ourselves being self-directed uh we're quite confident in that if we have an idea for something we can execute it quite uh efficiently uh, mm. because it's coming from our mind and our discussions may say yeah we can do x y and z and you know turn that uh concept around um whereas with a client you're trying to meet their expectations and goals and that that's a bit of a dance sometimes yeah you know, you're back and forward quite quite a, quite a bit um and sometimes i always think of it as you know musicians i was surrounded by very talented virtuosic musicians growing up and i was always told that you know a musician hits the height of their um skill set and then continues to uh progress and develop once whatever they hear in their 
mind or in their ear, they can then fluid, fluently translate that on their chosen instrument. And that's kind of what we try to do yeah. at, uh, through Jerome Studios. If, if, we have, if we want to execute a smell, we'll be able to turn that round efficiently and effectively, yeah. um, relatively quickly, because um, we don't have all the external pressures of what a client would have. Yeah. Um, which leads me on really quite nicely, actually, to my next question, which is, which of your, your creations was it the hardest to complete to your satisfaction? And, and why do you think that was? Uh, I think, without a doubt, Trimeris, our perfume Trimeris, um, was easily over three years in the making. And that's not just three years because it was started and shelved and then we went back to it, you know, 10 months later. We were working on Trimeris almost you know, on a weekly basis, but more um, furiously, I suppose you'd maybe say, in the winter months over a three-year uh, period. Um, and I don't know, for us, we were there is so many great and beautiful and landmark Oris or Iris perfumes on the market. And, you know, there's more than two handfuls of really exceptional Oris perfumes you know we could sit and list so many of them um but what we normally do is we would then look at that and say that's fine and well but what could we do to add our spin on an oris type facet um so for us we were trying to do two things which are i suppose quite difficult in and of themselves we were trying to look at different textural elements of the oris itself um but on the other hand we also quite romantically wanted to try and capture the process of the oris harvest um which is a very long and fairly convoluted process uh but we were really uh trying to look at the three facets which we feel most perfumers overlook when they're developing an Oris uh, perfume, which is the inherent exalting effect that the Oris as a raw material has. It pushes other materials and notes higher and it almost becomes quite ethereal when used in certain ways. And then we also wanted to look at the uh, the effervescent or the naturally fizzy, near uh, fermented even quality of the Oris, and then also the slightly acidic character as well. You know, when you smell real high quality Oris, uh, it has all of those um, near textbook facets that uh, many perfumers like to highlight or put center stage. You know, it's powdery, it's soft, it's musky, it's slightly vegetal, it has a chocolatey element, it has all of those. Uh, descriptive words, but it also has these in- inherent um, properties that actually add a almost a uh, like a function to the to the fragrance by pushing other materials in certain directions, and it has this odd, slightly fermented quality to it, as well as that acidic character yeah. as well. So we were kind of really uh, looking to to do something which still sits within the Oris landscape, but was perhaps 
a slightly different nod on the the Oris note, yeah, as it, as it were. Mm. And I love that um, you're trying to add your voice to the chorus rather than make a textbook or you know Oris perfume that is yeah. going to compete with somebody else. It's like, I like the idea that. Um, it's about adding to that discussion and that kind of conversation Absolutely. that's going on. Um, yeah, exactly. Because there is, you know, so many beautiful Oris perfumes out there, as well as other, you know, noble notes in the in the perfumer's palette. But you know, I, I, uh, one that always stands out, uh, which I suppose, you know, it smells nothing like Trimbrus, but um, I would I sampled a. A perfume from a company Mask Milano called La Tessa, and that was the first time that it was almost like a, I don't know, two sparks in my mind. It was almost like the perfumer who formulated that perfume, Luca Mathai, had also found what I had been working on, which was this slightly fermented beer hoppy element, which. I had been working on for quite a long time. And then when I tried Latessa, I thought, excellent. Someone else is also working yeah. on an Oris in that stri- slightly weird, <laughs> fermented, fizzy element initially. And I thought, great. Yeah, it, it, yeah the conversation has started. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But there's so many. Yeah. yeah. And when you complete something... You know, and, and you, you complete it, you release it, and then the years pass. Do you ever go back and want to tinker with it or rework it? Or is when something done, it's done? For us, usually, it when it's done, it's done. Yeah, uh, we we kind of, when you, it's, it's, it's strange because, you know, artisan perfumers like ourselves, we will do the, the production work ourselves. So we'll... Anytime there's a new batch that's required, we will do that ourselves. It isn't done by a big manufacturing company. Um, so sometimes when you're in the batching process, that's when you really kind of, you know, if you're batching some trimmeress, you go, oh, actually, yeah, I could perhaps tweak have, have, have tweaked that and went in this direction. But then that would be a different uh, perfume entirely. So we, we never tend to uh, ever feel the urge to go back and 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 tweak stuff uh once it's off you know we we do like to work on our perfumes for over a, a, a relatively long period of time uh, usually with a, a pause before we launch them you know we'll, we'll work on it and then we'll get it to a point where it's wildly uh, widely accepted as a complete perfume and then we'll put it on the shelf literally on the shelf for uh, probably a couple of months. We won't touch it, we'll go back to it, we'll then rewear it. And usually we aren't looking to wildly change it. What we like to do or what we kind of speak amongst ourselves is we, we then try and take the formula or the perfume uh, past that acceptable point. And we want to try and almost craft it in a way that it feels uh, lived in or worn or over. That you're very familiar, like a an old leather sofa or a pair of jeans, or you know, we want it so it goes beyond the what would be accepted as a finalised, complete perfume, and kind of push it a little bit more. Um, but 
that can sometimes lead to us almost twisting the, the, the formulation and taking out or reducing or uh, sometimes replacing materials uh, so they no longer sit technically correct. You know, sometimes it's that imperfection which is ultimately really alluring. You know, if things smell sterile and clinical, that's great for one style of perfume yeah. or perfumery. And, uh, but for us, we're trying to kind of push our own self-directed work so they feel lived in and uh, you can almost feel a, a fingerprint uh, on, on the on the, on the end product. Mm. It's the old adage, isn't it, about um, there's a crack in everything, that's how the light gets in. Mm. And it Absolutely. it is those imperfections um, in, in people that I find myself particularly drawn to. And I'd never really drawn yeah. the um, the parallel with it being the kind of the chinks in perfumes that really sort of seduce you and win you over. But I really like that idea. Yeah, no, that's 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 exactly it. Yeah, um, and some, sometimes the, the fragrances don't even really need to be pushed past that point. Like something like Phloem was a really instinctual um, creation. And usually in the sort of the, the timeline of, of the creation of the fragrance, we would have probably pushed it a lot further. Um, but I remember you and showed me the, the formula that we eventually released. And it was quite early on in the process. And it was kind of just a, a moment of like don't touch it like that it's that's it done like that's it was first it was, yeah it was the first phloem which people can now you know engage with that was the very first formulation that was you know very instinctual um construction in some way uh and then from that you know we i, I did a little bit of revision work but it kind of smelled too i don't like using the word perfect but it kind of smelled quite conformist and Chloe said, "No, no, no, <laughs> that, no. That that's that's that that is not where that product, that perfume, should be." Back to the one you showed me earlier, which turned out to be the very first uh, modification, which is fairly rare. You know, you know, it, normally we have to do a couple of tweaks at the very least, um, and most often it's a much lengthier development process. But Floam was. Uh, was a kind of first hit wonder mm. <laughs> in some ways. Yeah, that's fantastic. And what's next for Joram? What have you got on the horizon? Um, well, we're currently, like all of our friends and colleagues in the UK, we're not only battling a COVID-19 pandemic, and hopefully we are seeing the light come into focus on that, but you know, Brexit is uh, is the the doom and gloom currently. So we're taking our time to really um, figure that out because we have a large, uh, relatively large customer base in Europe and a very strong appetite and increasingly so, but that's been kind of derailed for the immediate future. But we're hoping to get back on track with that in the next couple of months. We just want to take our time with that. But, I mean, we have probably not so many launches uh this year uh one or two which is still relatively quite a lot um but more uh things closer to home i suppose uh is yeah. is, 
is uh, what we're going to be focusing on because we have this year is probably shaping up to be our uh, our biggest year client wise uh, in terms of production and manufacturing and all of that stuff. So we have to balance both of them out. And I think yeah, we launched Jerome Studio two or so years ago. Just under two, yeah. And it's it's been non-stop you know, since that first day really has, which we're immensely thankful yeah. for. But we do need to take a breather on especially the you know, launching product front. We, we want to just let the products that we have released have a little bit of a breather. And we have a few ideas for uh, what, what should be going yeah. next. But we're, we're, we have a few other bits and pieces that we're working on. Um, I suppose it's a lot like uh, sort of writing a, an album or something. It's you you want to give yourself enough time to find new sources of inspiration before you release anything new just to make sure it's, you know, it's definitely what you want to say. Um, so we're just sort of taking our time, feeling out um, sort of different routes, different mood boards and and seeing um, what we think is, is, is the next one to, to go with really. Um, but yeah, everything sort of every day is a creative process. So we're, we're sort of slowly enjoying it a bit more and trying to uh, savor those, those slower times mm. and uh, sort of just, yeah, taking it all in. Yeah, no, that sounds very sensible. So that's the end of my kind of formal questions, but I have some quick fire questions, if you wouldn't mind indulging me, mm-hmm. please. And yeah, to, sure. to both of you. So um, if you want to answer one after each other, that might be the best way, or I can run through them all for one of you and then run through them off the other but let's see how they go so yeah. what's your favorite smell chloe oh um hot tarmac <laughs> uh, me um probably my dog's feet oh yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> it sounds strange but yeah the smell like popcorn, popcorn yeah, yeah popcorny uh, <laughs> buttery uh, yeah uh, what smells do you dislike Oh. I can answer this for Chloe. She hates a particular um, <laughs> chemical family uh, referred to as pyrazines. She, anytime I show her anything with pyrazines, even if it doesn't necessarily smell too overly soily, she oh, it smells like soil. <laughs> yeah. Smells like soil. She's very, very susceptible to the smell of soil. You know, the geosmen or any of these other um, very powerful pyrazine materials she absolutely hates them uh answer that myself um i don't think there's anything you don't like um certain cheeses um, oh, i'm, I'm yeah. not a big uh, it doesn't like brie yeah brie i'm, I'm not a fan <laughs> of uh, but there isn't much else that i, I don't but even then you're still analyzing it and thinking oh what could i, <laughs> what could I, what could I do with that <laughs> Um, if you could go anywhere and smell anything from any point in history, where would you go and what would you smell? Oh, that's that's hard. Um, probably, I, I don't know. Um, I remember, um, so we did uh, an Instagram sort of quiz thing um, and sort of asked people to sort of um, describe a, a smell that they wanted to recreate. And uh, there was a customer called Katie who um, described a cave in, I, can't, I think it was in Jordan. And mm. um, it, it basically, in the cave, it, it, after, after hundreds of centuries, it had um, sort of taken in the smell of like orange oil. 
Um, and I think sort of going back to a time when sort of essential oils were used in such a different way, mm. um, but going back to those places now and seeing how they still smell of that, I think that's definitely something that's on the to-do list to, yeah. to go and check out for sure. Owls like probably overly industrial smells. Yeah, I think Victorian shipyards must have been a fantastic place yeah. for people who like industrial smells of oil, metal. <laughs> yeah. Cigarettes. Cigarettes. <laughs> I think that must have been a fairly uh, potent experience. Mm. Um, yeah. Uh, what do you think fear smells like? Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> um, good oh, one. Actually, our, our dog, when if, if something bad happens and he, he gets uh, mm. afraid, he has a very particular smell. It's quite metallic. Yes, yeah. very metallic. Um, slightly, uh, well, it smells warm, but it's it's almost like, I don't know, like burning tyres kind of yeah, as well. Yeah, it's almost like a, lots of like hormones, yeah, kind of going into overdrive as a we didn't intend to but we have a very aromatic dog <laughs> <laughs> i think a lot of people do <laughs> yeah. um what smell transports you to a strong olfactive memory and where does it take you i uh tell people this story and they usually uh react in a very interesting way um but i really every time i smell like on a hot day if i smell a hot bin like I get transported back to like childhood holidays in places like Turkey and Spain, where it's like the bins are just kind of left to, to fester in the sun. And it's it's a really powerful sort of olfactory memory for me just to, to wander by a, a hot bin and you feel as if you're <laughs> wandering around, you know, the, the streets of Turkey and when you're 10 years old. And it's a, it's a really powerful thing for me. Mine is probably also in some way connected to heat, but... Uh, it's very particular and it only has happened a few times uh, so far. But when I was very young, I grew up beside a huge hill which was covered in gorse. Um, and every single year, some kids would set fire to this thing. And it used to go up like a tinderbox. <laughs> but it's the smell of the really dry, dead gorse, which had been ignited with the burning smell of coconut and all of those gorse-like smells. But sometimes in Edinburgh, we have this uh, basically hill mountain in the middle of the city, which is covered in gorse, and sometimes people set fire to it inadvertently. <laughs> and as soon as I smell that burning gorse, it takes me straight back to childhood uh, with some rogue setting fire to the gorse hill. Uh, so it's connected in some way to Chloe's <laughs> hot bin. <laughs> Um, fantastic. <laughs> I, don't, I haven't even got anything to say to that. I just. <laughs> uh, what fragrances are you wearing right now? Oh. Uh... Actually, today I'm wearing. Um, it's actually from Zara, Zara Home. Uh, it's called Aqua Bergamotta. Um, I think it was. Who Alberto was Maria. Alberto Marias, um, perfumer who created it um so zara home did a sort of a, a collection of fragrances by master perfumers um they're really really good fragrances mm, yeah. um so yeah I'm, I'm wearing that one today it's a sort of a, a pick-me-up because i didn't have a very good night's mm. sleep and i am wearing uh from your post which triggered me to uh squish on some uh bois mm. uh which and i never wear fragrance i haven't been working on fragrance today um 
I've actually been painting this morning, uh, painting walls, that is. I don't do any art. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> but I put on Boiferine uh, because as soon as I seen your post the other day, I thought, oh, I need to go and find that you know, tiny trickle that's left in a 100ml bottle and, and uh, go back to it because it's, it's gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a, a, it's a masterpiece, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and I think we've, we've maybe already touched on this one, but what does summer smell of? Hot bins. <laughs> yeah. Hot bins and burning gorse hills. Yep. But, uh, I suppose it always goes back in some way to um, yeah, suntan lotions, that yeah. that very distinctive copper tone, yeah. uh, ombre solaire. Uh, and things like fish and chips as well. Mm. Yeah. Like fish and chips and the seaside. Yeah. That sort of like salty, fishy smell. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which inadvertently leads me on perfectly to my next question which is what's your favorite food smell oh mine is always probably tomato leaves not particularly the tomatoes themselves but the leaves i love the smell of yeah. tomato leaves uh, oh god um you just like lots of different yeah foods, i mean sometimes smells. i really like the smell of um like if you grill broccoli mm. <laughs> i suppose i'm ewan's interest in odd smells is rubbing off on me a bit <laughs> <laughs> uh what smell reminds you of school of pencils, cedar wood. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Luckily for us, we have a collection, I mean, a collection of cedar wood um, oils. And it's literally like going back yeah. to school every time you smell certain ones. Yeah. It, it's, yeah. It's An industrial cleaner. Industrial cleaner, yeah. Yeah. Like polishing the floor after you've been there, like if it's like an after school club yeah. or something. And there's always a, a janitor polishing the floor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And finally, scientists have just invented a smellophone. Who would you ring first? Probably Ewan's gran. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's a good one. Who's sort of a Diana fragrance. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't be bothered speaking to her, so I would probably... <laughs> um, yeah, good one. Um, probably just a friend who I haven't spoken to or been able to interact with uh smells with again or a client much easier yeah. <laughs> yeah. i wouldn't have to ship any samples here smell this <laughs> Very true. Uh, yeah. <laughs> feedback quick thanks well that was fantastic thank you both so much for joining us today i, I found yeah, chatting you. to you thank really you. really informative and interesting so thank you ever so much for that yeah. thanks yeah. so much yeah it's a pleasure yeah, yeah. The Sniff Perfume Podcast is written and produced by me, Nicola Thomas, with music by Phil Collingwood. You can find all our reviews online at the-sniff.com. We're also on Instagram at the Sniff website or Twitter with the same handle. If you'd like to support our work, please find me on Buy Me A Coffee. The web address is buymeacoffee.com forward slash the sniff. Our guests today were Chloe Mullen and Ewan McCall from Joram Studio. We weren't paid in cash or in kind to feature their brand or their work. Thanks very much for listening.